What do you think about that? I think uh, I think it's a frog. I think it's quite a glorious sounding frog. I feel like it's a frog calling in the springtime. Uh, if I was to hazard a guess, I would say the exact species is going to be the Lake Victoria chirping frog. <laughs> um, if in doubt, just go crazily specific. Yeah, no, that's that's what I'm going for. I'm going. It's a Central African, very small. Uh, basically the equivalent of an African spring peeper. Okay, okay, well... And it loves lakes. Okay, well, I think they do They do like lakes. Um, I'll say this, Ben, it's a species of toad, not a species of frog, and... Well, it was nice doing the podcast. It's a shame we had to end it and <laughs> retreat. <laughs> Never to be seen again. And uh, this... Toad is actually a species that you and I have observed together in its native habitat. In fact, I vividly remember crouching down next to a small pond and watching you take a rather glorious photo of this species. It's a Dutterphrynus melanistictus. Yeah, I mean, that's it. I was trying to like go through all the times that we may have seen toads together and it's literally could only be two species. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, then I was suddenly going through, wait, are there, are there more toads in Thailand that we could have seen? So yeah, this uh, big chunky toad, um, sort of like the Asian version of a cane toad, isn't it really? Um, yeah, big, about 20 centimetres long, top size, um, sort of yellowy colour. And the reason it's called... One of the common names is the Asian black spine toad is because it's got sort of black flecks all down its back. And, yeah, uh, it almost looks like it's shell-shaded on its on its head with a very dark line surrounding the nose and the eyes and things. It's It's got a very comic book-esque feel to its face. Yeah, it does. It's like the Marvel character of toads. Yeah. Um, and also, of course, now, um, ever since uh, about it was 2011... They arrived in Madagascar, and uh, yeah, they are causing the chaos that was predicted. So, yeah. Um, great. So, there we go. Dutterphrynus melanistictus, that was the sound you heard. Uh, oh, what we... a tragedy. I didn't recognize it. I know, yeah. You've, you know, you know, it's not like you published your master's on it or anything. No. Well, to be fair, that was... I didn't even touch any DNA from that toad. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're. I mean, yeah. I mean, you could play. I I can't identify any amphibians by their call, so <laughs> maybe. I don't one know. Of them. I reckon. You, I reckon you could do little uh, Kalula Poultra. Kalula, I'd recognise. Yeah. yeah, I love those little guys. Um, okay, yeah. So let's get on to. We've got a paper for this episode, which is in. Well, it's um, obviously we just the last episode we talked about um, sea snakes. And uh, in this episode, we're talking about another group of sort of marine, somewhat marine, sort of, yeah, they do go into salty, salty areas, snakes. Um, and the paper is by Jane Voris and Ning. How big is too big? Using crustacean-eating snakes to test how anatomy and behaviour affect prey size and feeding performance, published in the Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society in 2018. So this paper is all about some weird snakes that eat unusual foods. 
Um, we've talked a little bit in the past about snakes. Obviously, the vast majority, there's, there's a lot of different strategies that snakes employ. You've got front fanged snakes, you've got rear fanged snakes, you've got constricting species, you've got the odd species that breaks the prey apart and eats them. Um, but this paper focuses on three species of crustacean eating snakes from Malaysia. They're all from the family Homolopsidae which is the family of Indo-Australian water snakes, or sometimes the sort of less glamorous term that people use for them is mud snakes. <laughs> I mean, they do. some of them do love living in mud. I mean, they all love mud, mate. I bet yeah. you they do. Um, and yeah, like, like you say, mud, mud, they love it. It's an apt name for them. All three species that we're discussing here inhabit tidal mudflats and mangrove forests on the west coast of Peninsular Malaysia. So they're all living in the intertidal zone where it's very, very muddy. And um, and filled with crabs. Filled with crabs and shrimps. Which if you, yeah, if you consider, you know, a crab, you know, picture a crab in your mind. Medium-sized crab. Picturing. And it's got all these sticky outy bits. It's with its decapodness. Not exactly the sort of prey that you would feel is uh, suited for a snake, right? No. If you've got a tube-shaped animal, you would have thought that it's going to be better adapted to eating similar-sized, but slightly smaller, tubes. Exactly. Then here comes this crab that's not only all sort of sticky-outy with all its legs, but is hard-carapaced. Yeah, yeah. And if you weren't eating anything tube-shaped, and I mean, we know the popularity of tube-shaped meals among snakes. So many snakes eat snakes, so many snakes eat eels. But if you can't eat something tube-shaped, at least eat something which tucks down so it's nearly a tube. Yeah, you know, squishable, like, yeah. right? Mammals. Yeah. Squishable or foldable. You, squ- you eat a mammal head first, its legs are going to tuck in. It's going to sort of be a tube. But yeah, like you say, that's really not an option with a crab. They're just too pointy. So I think, should we just go through these snakes via by species and talk about each one's sort of adaptations and tactics? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of sort of tying this into theory of like gape limitation and stuff like that with in terms of the justification for the study. But I feel like the real... I don't interesting care about aspects. any of that stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's describing how these snakes are overcoming this quite sizable problem. Yeah, because that's to me that's the interesting bit here. Yeah, um, the gape thing's fine if you're a gape connoisseur. Read this paper, you'll learn something about gape. Right. But like you say, I think really the story here is these snakes are doing some mad things to eat crabs. And in terms of methods, it's basically just videoed snakes eating crabs. Yeah, and and whatnot. That's that's. That's the game plan here, is how does snake eat crab? <laughs> yeah, and in order to find that out, we've Which, got a the videos, special... Are they, are they viewable? Do we they have are viewable. The and I'll, yeah, okay, I'll I did see the one show then, notes. good. The videos are viewable and the videos are quite gripping viewing, if you're interested in snakes, and um, can only really be described as... They're quite spooky, actually. It's a bit spooky. They're in lo- yeah, well, they're in low light, so some of them are infrared. So <laughs> yeah. they've got this... They've got a sort of feel to them. <laughs> yeah, they do. It's all sort they of have... murky and gloomy, and everything's <laughs> quite... muddy and soggy and quite dark. Low vibe. light. Yeah. yeah, it's it's Thunderdome Mud Edition. Mudderdome. The Mudderdome. So let's talk about the first one, which has probably got the least exciting of the adaptations, but you know, not to sell it short, still cool. So this is Cantoria violacea which is known as Cantor's water snake. It's a black snake with yellow stripes all the way down the body. Grows to about a metre long. 
loves the mud flats and they eat shrimp predominantly. And I wouldn't say there was that much that unusual about this other than the fact they eat shrimp, but they do, they, they squash the shrimp. So when they find a shrimp, they sort of press their body on top of it so it can't move. They don't constrict it. They just hold it in place, either with their neck or their body. And then they just start swallowing it. And they usually swallow them backwards. Well, that was the unusual bit is usually, like like you talked about mammals, snakes tend to eat things head first because that's the way the limbs are all going to fold up and it's going to be nicely... Uh, Tubular. Yeah, right. Um, eating a shrimp backwards. I suppose maybe shrimp's legs work differently or that it just doesn't matter yeah i guess if the shrimp's got little claws pincers um then maybe swallowing them last is a good idea right so they did have two trials where the shrimp um was snapping as a sort of defensive behavior like oh stay away from me don't eat me um it it didn't help it doesn't work don't if you're a shrimp listening to this get out don't bother snapping just Flap away if you can. That works yeah. better. Just general flapping rather than snapping. Snapping is where they really quickly um, bring their tail gi- up to their body. It's that like, gives oh, you a 50-50 shot of getting out the 50. flapping. Unless yeah. you're in the mud thunderdome, in which case you've got a 0% chance of getting out. But yeah, don't yeah. flap. <laughs> That's the advice to shrimp. So you've got the Cantor's water snake. They're eating shrimp backwards. Let's talk about Fordonia leucobalia. So this is the crab-eating snake. Or the white-bellied mangrove snake is another name for it. And the species epithet leucobalia actually means white-bellied. Very apt. And guess what? They have a white belly. And they're the stockiest of these three snakes. Compared to the other two species, they're quite chunky. Growing to about a metre long. Quite a variable dorsal coloration. They can be grey, they can be red. Sometimes they have spots. And as the name would suggest, not only are they white-bellied, but they eat crabs. And... They have an unusual way of subduing them compared to what you might expect. Yeah, I mean, let's let's just classic snake subduing, bite onto said prey item, somewhat immobilize it, either with venom or with constricting or partial constricting, then proceed to consume said prey item, right? That is the vanilla snake approach. Right. These guys don't start with a bite. They come in with a, what they what they're terming a chin pin. Oh, they call it a chin pin. A chin pin, yeah. That's very good. Yeah, uh, yeah. They don't. They um, yeah. They just come in. They use the chin pin move where they just use their head as sort of like a big flat shovel and they use it to press the crab down so it can't move. Then once they've got it pinned with the head, they transfer to pinning it with the body so it's not a coil around the crab it's literally just a section of body laid over the crab pushing down so that the crab is immobilized if you've ever immobilized the crab with your thumb you're doing the same thing um and then if the crab's small they swallow it sideways as if the crab was just scuttling into their mouth but if the crab's larger they tend to pin it down with their body and then they swallow the legs individually so They'll start eating a leg, and by the time they reach the body, usually the leg just breaks off. But if it doesn't, they do this kind of like jerking motion with their head. Right, which is important that there is the jerky motion occurring, because if that wasn't occurring, it would appear just to be like crabs can drop their legs to get away from things. So they are putting force in to pull those legs off 
So it's not just an autonomy. They are having to put in effort to get those legs. Right. And so, yeah, once they've individually broken the legs off, they eat the body. And this species has really blunt teeth, which is kind of unusual. Most snakes have very sharp teeth. It's thought that these blunt teeth might be less delicate because they're eating really hard prey, like maybe they're less prone to breaking. And the other interesting adaptation they have is a very thick stomach, which the authors of this paper believe is because when they swallow the crabs, crabs can go without oxygen for a while. They're pretty... You know, they're pretty resilient creatures. A crab can survive out of water for quite some time. So they're they can, extremely resilient creatures, yeah. I would say. So they can also su- survive inside a stomach for quite a long time. And occasionally, or even often, these snakes are going to be swallowing. Um, we're talking about the white-bellied mangrove snake. They might be swallowing crabs which are largely intact. And so still, you know, they've still got their pincers. They, they, they know how to use them. And so the idea that the authors have is that these thick stomachs are an adaptation to stop the crabs busting their way out after they've been swallowed or doing damage to the internal organs of the snake. And they back that up. They actually caught one of these snakes. And two hours after they captured it, they were palpating them to see what they'd eaten. So they give the, the, they give the snakes a squeeze around their guts and basically force out whatever they've eaten to learn what they've been eating. And one of them regurgitated a, a crab, which was pretty much intact. It still had its pincers, everything, and it was alive. So that has been inside the snake just waiting for at least two hours prior to the authors coming along and squeezing it out, which suggests the crabs might have quite a long time to while away in the stomach thinking about escape. And so, yeah, yeah. thick stomach necessary horrific end for the crab ah oh, you wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy oh would you? my gosh yeah it yeah. doesn't really bear thinking about for those poor no. crabs nature is as cruel and harsh as ever yeah yeah so um yeah so that's fordonia leucobalia you, you might its, find you've got a new favorite snake after hearing with that its chin pin yeah with its chin pin so they're called crab eating snakes or white-bellied mangrove snakes so let's get on to the final species which I would say is probably the wild one of the bunch. Well, still did a little bit of chin pinning. Fifteen percent did the chin pin of this species as well. So, okay, we got so some we got some overlap. There is some but, overlap um, in terms of the chin pinning. Also, some more advanced techniques. I would say. I would agree. So this is Garada prevostiana, which is Gerard's water snake. So this one is dark olive green on top and white beneath, and they're much smaller than the other two, growing to a maximum of forty centimeters total length. And uh, yeah, they have a pretty startling approach to their feeding strategy. Unlike the others, they specialize in eating freshly malted crabs, which fishermen would call peeler crabs, which are very tempting prey for a lot of species. And because the crabs have just malted, so every so often crabs shed their exoskeleton and they have a brand new one underneath which is larger than grow into it. But because they have to sort of manipulate themselves to get out, they have to be really soft inside their old shell so when they first emerge from their old hard exoskeleton their new shell hasn't actually hardened up to its final form yet and they're really squidgy and extra delicious during this period and these snakes gerard's water snake they seek out they seek out these peeler crabs these recently molted crabs which are very soft and uh they they hunt them down they find them and they actually They do sometimes do the chin pin, as you mentioned, Ben, but also quite frequently they strike with their mouths open. And if they contact the legs of one of these recently molted crabs, they just immediately start swallowing them. They break off as they go. 
And similar to the crab-eating snakes, they also pin the crab with the body while they're manipulating them. But they differ in that once they've got the crab pinned down, they're still holding onto it with the mouth. And what they do is they throw a loop of their body around their own neck very tightly. So imagine the snake is wearing its own body as a scarf, essentially. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. yeah, and it forms a loop, a tight loop around the neck. What the snake does with the soft crab is it pulls it. And as it pulls through the loop, it tightens the loop. And so what that does is it basically starts to mangle the crab. So the crab goes from being... And the snakes will do this repeatedly. They'll pull the crab through this neck loop over and over again. They'll keep reforming the loop, pulling it through, reforming the loop, pulling it through. And as they do this, the crab will either break into parts or it will become sort of like stretched out and mashed. And after a certain amount of time, either pieces break off and they eat the pieces or the crab becomes sufficiently Mm -hmm. mangled that they can just swallow it down. Maximum number of pieces they saw one of these snakes pull a crab into was 10. Wow. So that's a, you know, repeated... You know, they're repeating this technique again and again, eating this crab potentially piecemeal. Yeah. But that was the most extreme case. Yeah. This method is pretty amazing, really, isn't it? Because they are much smaller than the other two species, but they can actually tackle pretty big crabs with this method because they're breaking it down. And they also do it really fast. Like, they tackle large prey. I mean, you know, (laughs) there's a reason why so many animals bite bits off their prey and eat it It is it is a good method um and yeah they managed to dispatch and tackle relatively large crabs i mean far larger than they could just swallow simply by Mm -hmm. swallowing in the normal fashion yeah yeah there's a good sort of uh summary stat they have in the discussion that sort of pulls this all together and they're sort of saying to they do a little summary so to consume 20 percent of the snake's mass for these different species. Um, I forget which order uh, they're pulling these up in. Um, But really, we only care about uh, this last one doing the loop and pull. Yeah, Gerard's water snake. That's a ticket. So the others in between two or five prey items to hit that 20%, whereas Gerald's two and a half prey items. Yeah, so, you know, number of prey items, not too much different. What's really different is the amount of handling time required to eat that amount of food. So for the other two species, you're talking like 35, 40 minutes over a, over a day to hit that 20% of mass consumed. The uh, Gerald's, you're dealing with... Gerard. Gerard, you're dealing with about six and a half minutes. Wow. Yeah, so they are like, not hanging around. So much faster. It really speaks to how efficient that loop and pull te- technique is for just preparing the crab in a way that can be consumed and allowing for presumably substantially larger uh, prey items. You know, just that's going to be an efficiency. The amount of time taken to capture and initially subdue a prey item is going to add to that handling time, isn't it? Yeah. One of the other things they mentioned is that um, because obviously these snakes, they're only eating freshly molted crabs because you can't, if you try and do the old loop and pull on a crab with a hard shell, it's just not going to work. You're going to hurt yourself. And so they were talking about how the crabs are actually discovered by the snakes. And what they did was because in order to provide freshly molted crabs to the snakes for the purpose of this study, they kept a bunch of crabs in captivity so that as soon as they molted, they could give them to the snakes. And 
What they saw was that if a crab had freshly molted, if they took a few drops of the water that the crab had molted in and dropped it at the entrance to the snake's burrow in the mud, the snakes would actually come out looking for the crab. And they think it's because the there's a hormone involved in the molting pro in the molting process, and this mm. is across insects um, and crustaceans, and uh, it's called ecdysone. And this is rather rather aptly, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, and this is the um, hormone that is yeah used in controlling that molting process. And if the snakes detect water with that in it, it causes them a great amount of interest. So they think that the snakes are probably following chemical cues to find snakes that have just molted. Crabs that have just Crabs molted. Crabs that have just molted. Yeah. yeah. Which is wild. But it also makes a lot of sense because if you were just hoping to encounter crabs that had just molted, you'd be bumping into a lot of crabs that hadn't just molted and were actually right a lot more dangerous to and it, tussle with. So it's a sort of danger thing. I wonder if it really speaks to the um, like energy expend expenditure compared to energy gained from eating freshly molted crabs compared to tougher ones because you're thinking okay increased handling time that's increased energy that's less energy in relation to the crab itself because part of its part of the crab's mass is, t is taken up by this low nutritional hard carapace right whereas mm -hmm. if you just got a freshly molted one everything a lot more of it proportionally is going to be useful when you eat it right yeah more delicious crab yeah Remarkable, really. <laughs> it is. So we've got three species of homolopsid snake here. They've all evolved to eat crabs and other crustaceans. And yeah, some pretty fascinating novel strategies. Because it wasn't long ago that we were saying on the podcast, oh, there's only one or two species of snake that actually break their prey apart. But it's right. becoming, it's becoming yeah, we... clear that there's more and more. We just didn't know about it. Yeah, we were talking about um, blind snakes yeah, that's Nicking right. Nicking the heads off termites and stuff, right? That's it, yeah. Nipping the, um, well, eating the body and then just yes, nipping, leaving nipping the, head. Off the head. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, <clears throat> a really fascinating paper. Another trip to the Thunderdome, which we always enjoy. And as, you know, if people want to see a snake eating a crab, there are, uh, there are videos available. <laughs> yeah, and the video is really excellently narrated as well. It's really cool. It reminds me of, you know, at school when the VHS player gets wheeled in. It's very, it's very <laughs> It does much have that feel, yeah. <laughs> 80s, because this, a lot of this work took place in the 80s. It's, they've been doing this for a while. They've been sitting on yes. this. Yes, yes. There seems to be two wa two waves of study that was done, a bunch in the 80s and then a bunch in the early 2000s, and that it's culminated in this, in this paper. Yeah. But yeah, certainly very cool. Cool, I think that's it. That's it for the old uh, crab-eating snakes. Have you got any other business to attend to? I don't. No, I, I, I think uh, crab-eating snake techniques is... That's that's all I got. That's all I got to talk about. And yeah. it's kind of wonderful. And <laughs> hey, you know, gape-limited predators might not always be so gape-limited, I think is the uh, the takeaway in some some ways. Yeah, we just we need to be giving snakes more credit for their diversity of approaches to existence. Yeah. But, I mean, it's very telling that this sort of stuff pops up in things like homolopsids and sort of weird mud-dwelling uh, snakes that may potentially be harder to find. They're not sort of arboreal, sneaking around by people and, and sharing the space as frequently if they're doing their consuming in the mud, in the dark, with the crabs. Then perhaps it's harder to find out and... Uh, 
spot. Yeah, yeah, right on. So if you want to get in touch with us, you can. Herbhighlights at gmail.com or we are on social media. And uh, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening.